Today's guest is so exciting. One of my educational and curriculum writing heroes, Dr. Goldnasar Mohammed. She is an associate professor of literacy, language, and culture at the University of Illinois in Chicago. She has previously served as a classroom teacher, literacy specialist, school district administrator, curriculum director, and school board president. She has done it all. She studies Black historical excellence in education, intending to reframe curriculum and instruction today. Dr. Muhammad's scholarship has appeared in leading academic journals and books. She's also received numerous national awards and is the author of the best-selling book, Cultivating Genius, an Equity Model for Culturally and Historically Responsive Literacy. If you have not read this yet, you have to. It is one of my favorite educational books of all time. She also co-authored Black Girls Literacies, an edited volume. Her culturally and historically responsive education model has been adopted across thousands of U.S. schools and districts across Canada. In 2022, she was named among the top 1% edgy scholar public influencers due to her impact on policy and practice. She has also received numerous awards from national organizations and universities. She was named the American Educational Research Association Division K Early Career Award and the 2021 NCTE Outstanding Elementary Educator in the English Language Arts. She has led a federal grant with the U.S. Department of Education to study culturally and historically responsive literacy in STEM classrooms. Amazing. Her forthcoming book, which is out now as of the release of this episode, it is Again, amazing, Unearthing Joy. It's the sequel to Cultivating Genius. It provides a practical guide for putting culturally and historically responsive education into curricular practice. And that is what we are diving in today. Get excited for an amazing conversation. I'm educational justice coach, Lindsay Lyons. And here on the Time for Teachership podcast, we learn how to inspire educational innovation for racial and gender justice, design curricula grounded in student voice, and build capacity for shared leadership. I'm a former teacher leader turned instructional coach. I'm striving to live a life full of learning, running, baking, traveling, and parenting because we can be rockstar educators and be full human beings. If you're a principal, assistant superintendent, curriculum director, instructional coach, or teacher who enjoys nerding out about co-creating curriculum with students, I made this show for you. Here we go. Dr. Goldnasar Muhammad, welcome to the Time for a Teachership podcast. Thank you, Lindsay. I'm so happy to be here. Oh my gosh, I am so happy to have you. And I would love to just hear, is there anything you want to share with us at the very front of the conversation to kind of frame what we're going to talk about today? We're going to talk a lot about your book, Unearthing Joy. Um, anything you want people to keep in mind as we have that conversation? Well, I just think that like these ideals of like genius and joy are like <laughs> prime topics um, and justice. So, you know, we have been in like dire need of these things across time in education, um, genius, justice, and joy. And so I know those words are going to come up a lot as we talk and just know that like our children, our communities deserve all three. Um, and so, so does our teachers, right? Our teachers deserve for their joy to be centered, for their genius to be recognized and acknowledged, and for justice-centered classrooms. So that's what I'll say as we get started. I love that so much. And, and actually, I wanted to, I just finished on our thing during this morning, so I'm really excited to dive in. And I, <laughs> I wanted to just say, this has been such a joy to experience as a book. So everyone who has not already purchased this book needs to go get it because there are so many multimodal texts as you talk about that are, it's just like a display of what is possible just within the book. And I've colored, I've listened to music. It's beautiful. 
<laughs> so you had the full experience of the book. Yeah. No, thank you. That means so much to me. So thank you. I mean, that's such great feedback. I, you know, when you love something and then you, you love it so much and you want to offer it to the world and you just like hope they love it in an ounce of what you do. So thank you. Absolutely. And I think part of that is kind of what I wanted to talk about today. So the, the first thing I want to define for people is like, what is joy? Because I think it seems like there, sometimes when I talk to educators in my own work, there's kind of this misconception when I talk about this concept of joy of, of what joy really is versus kind of what we think about, or is kind of like the surface level version of it. Like your depth of definition is just far surpassing what I think a lot of people think it is. So I, I want to know if you would speak to some of that language you use. Yeah. So in my work, I, I define joy as more than just like having fun, happiness, celebration, parties, <laughs> you know, that is joy. That can be considered as related to joy, but I wanted to know what was joy for the ancestors. And so when I asked that question, I found that they had more expanded notions of what is joy. Joy was also, wasn't just happiness, but it was like a sustained happiness. If you think of happiness as like more immediate and think of joy as more like long-term, joy is what you have when adversity continues to strike and you retain your happiness, right? It's like something that is very sustainable. They define joy as like wellness, as healing, as abolition, as working toward a better humanity for all. Joy was the beauty the aesthetics that we were able to learn and recognize within ourselves and, and within humanity. Um, it was when we centered love and music and art in our learning experiences and our children's voice. Joy is when we brought each other together and did things in a collective as opposed to individualism and competition and things like that. So joy was like all these things. It was like recognizing benefits and how we can make the world a better place and, and all the things that are good, beneficial and beautiful in the world. So it is, it is wide. I break that down in a shorter way in the book where I offer you know these ancestral joys um, to readers so that they can go beyond just you know these more simplistic ways of looking at joy. Yeah. And that, that definition is so expansive. And I love that you cite all of these different passages and things from the ancestors. And I, and I think one of the things that, that was really helpful for me was you said, you know, in the book, a balance of criticality and joy is essential. So that kind of pairing of joy and justice. And, and I think you also said possibility is joy. And I think about that from the, the lens of a, a, you know, curriculum design and instructional coaching and, and thinking about what that looks like when we ask students to not just learn about oppression, um, and, and have this kind of criticality, but that, that we are enabling students as well. We're providing those opportunities for them to step into that leadership role, that activist role, um, that like creating the better possibility role in their own communities. And I, I know you work with so many teachers where, where you get to see that in, in their lesson plans and in their unit plans. Um, is there anything you wanted to, to speak to on that piece of what it looks like for students to engage in this way? Well, you're absolutely right. You know, there is a beautiful relationship between criticality and joy. And it felt like from writing Cultivating Genius, I needed to balance out the model 
because if criticality is this pursuit of helping children to name, understand, disrupt oppression, how then can we balance it out with what is good in the world, with the solutions, with the hope? That's what joy offers. And we don't get to joy if there's no justice, right? If there is constant pain in the world and people don't feel safe, don't feel empowered, don't feel happy, you know, how can we, how can we have complete and full joy? So there is that relationship. And what I'm advising for educators is creating joy in, in a culture, a classroom of joy is anywhere from how we greet students, how we talk to them, what's on the walls, um, how they feel when they walk in, is their color. I mean, it's like those aesthetic and simplistic things, but then it's also how we make it a more um, prominent goal, like, like almost like a learning standard within our curriculum and instruction. I love that, the idea of, of that as a learning standard, right? And, and I love that your frame of the five pursuits as a way to, and you, and you share so many of these in both books, really, of, of how educators have taken it and, and mapped out an entire unit or a lesson with that framework, with the five pursuits kind of housing it all in, in kind of like just half a pager, you know? And, and it's beautiful to think about that as the starting point. Like we're going to design with criticality in mind. Um, and, and I think- what I absolutely love about this one is, is the idea of teacher as artists, right? And that artistry that is required for doing that. And so I'm just curious about your process. I know you spoke to the, the joy that it brings you when you think about curriculum design and, and engage in that work. Where do you start when you think about designing units for joy? Like what's your process in coming to think about the joy in, in any topic? Is it kind of natural? Do you kind of think about art first? I'm just wondering if we can help kind of people who are unfamiliar with this way of planning think through how they might go about it. Well, in my heart and mind and who I am, and so many of the teachers I work with, we are artists. We create from the world around us, just like any other visual creative artist would do, musical artists. We read the word, we read the world, and we create. Our art is our curriculum, is our lesson plans, is our unit plans. And I do understand that some, so many schools, they just follow more prescriptive lessons and units. They don't create their own. And for the most part, teachers are either, they're adapting those, right? And that still takes some artistry to adapt. So teacher, I, I started to see myself as, a, as an artist because my curriculum felt like artwork. The ways in which I would piece together lesson plans to tell these beautiful and rich stories that I felt my students needed to learn. And then um, over the years, I had the opportunity to work with artists. Um, one particular artist is Bisa Butler. And I got to see her process and learn about her process um, of how she creates. And I said, that's what I feel like when I create curriculum. Or, you know, my husband's an artist. And I watch his process of creation and writing lyrics and producing and all these things. And I'm like, that's what I do when I write lesson plans. It's different, but it's the same. And so my process of design is first like studying the world around me and reading, again, books and articles and watching film. And I, I get inspiration from everything, <laughs> even some of the silliest Netflix shows that I just watch to take my mind off of things, but I'm like, oh, that's an idea for a lesson plan. 
And then um, I asked myself, what issues are most urgent to be taught right now? And, and out of all the things in the world, what must I teach? I really start with that question. And sometimes I start when I'm teaching children, sometimes I start with a really great text that I've read. Um, like I taught, I, I wrote a lesson recently on your name is a song. And I love that book. And I'm like, I got to teach a lesson around this. Sometimes I start with a learning standard of what children need. And sometimes I just start with like a theme or a concept that I feel like children really need to understand. But I try to make my curriculum not only responsive to the identities uh, and the needs of students, but also to the social times we're living in. So I try to say like, what words define our social times? And it's, it can be divisive, it can be pain, it can be words related to like oppression, but it's also words related to like hope, togetherness. And so whatever it is, I try to create and design around our social times and what our children need today. I love that you talk about that here. And then also in the book, I think that idea of connecting artistry to that response to social times and then the legacy that we leave and the impact that that has is such a profound way of thinking about what we do as, as educators and also just the, the long-term long-standing importance of our work. Mm-hmm. And I think we talk about that sometimes and, you know, like, oh, we remember that teacher and how they made us feel or but it's so much deeper than that, right? It's so much of like, what are you, what are you learning in what ways are, um, I think you use the phrase in the, in a lot of the questions you have for teachers to ask themselves or even to ask students. Oh my gosh, you guys, listeners, there's so much good stuff in this book, but like, yeah, of course the list of questions that families can ask students or teachers can ask students post unit. Like, how did this help you, right? This idea of this should always be in service of students everything we do should be helping them and, and see the immediate relevance of how does it help you today, not in some distant future. And I just think that's, that, that's just so beautiful. So, so thank you for putting that in there. <laughs> thank um, you. Thank you for saying all of those things. Absolutely. It is, it is a profound uh, piece of piece of art that you've created. And, and I think one of the things that I, I so connected with just like, I was like, oh my gosh, she is like speaking to my heart right now is when you were talking about um, how you have, have have a personal goal of kind of cultivating teachers' fluency in developing curriculum. Yeah. And I just love that you named several examples of how you would do that with teachers, find an object in front of you, create a unit or lesson around it. And so I, I love this. I wonder if you can speak a little bit more to that or, or any of the other strategies that you've found effective in doing that work of like cultivating that curricular fluency. Lindsay, I'm about ready to go on a book tour with you. <laughs> I would love to. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, you know, I was trained um, like to, as a reading specialist, to teach children how to read. And, you know, we are trained to like teach about, you know, phonics, phonemic awareness, decoding, vocabulary, comprehension, and fluency. And I learned in my program as an undergrad too, like, Fluency is helping children to read um, like quickly, but at a nice pace with automaticity and they can look at a word and read it quickly. They don't pause, right? And I, I started to say, well, what happens if we apply that same definition to writing a lesson plan? You know, certainly, um, and in the book, I talk about the 
artists, as like fashion designers who sew things. And the more you become skilled at sewing, you can sew quicker, you know, like on Project Runway where they would have those challenges, like you have one hour versus three days, you know, those who had the, the mindset and were stronger in sewing, they sewed faster. And so we know that it is a gift of curricular fluency that will be developed just like with children's fluency, just like with an artist's fluency. And so this is where I'm, I'm, I'm working with teachers to see anything, any object, like you said, an object in front of you and say, what curriculum could you see? What history do you see? What intellectualism do you see? What criticality, what joy, what identity do you see? And it doesn't mean everything in front of us we have to teach. <laughs> we wouldn't have enough time. But it does mean that we are ready and prepared to build and to create for our students. I love that. And I'm thinking of all the opportunities that an educator, uh, educational leader, like a instructional coach could be a team lead, a principal that they would have in like a staff meeting or, or a PD to do some of these activities that might only take 10 minutes, right? To pick an object in front of you and think about a unit. Um, I'm wondering if there are examples of leaders who have done this kind of thing well, I guess this kind of thing is, is big, but like, you know, ha made the space um, given space and, and dedicated time and also funding to teachers to be able to kind of do this work well? Is there anything that you would, I know you suggest a lot in the book, is there anything that you would either emphasize from what you wrote or expand upon here? Yeah, I mean, there are lots of teachers. First, we got to believe in our, the genius of our teachers. Our teachers are special. They know stuff. And it's not like they can't do certain things. They just don't have the time to do it. <laughs> And so, you know, I, I get to work with a lot of teachers and I'll like give them a nice snapshot. Sometimes it's 90 minutes, an hour, two hours. Sometimes I'll just like explain the model, show them examples. And then immediate after that, they'll go together like in small groups and I'll say, now create. You have 20 minutes because that's all the time we have left or something. <laughs> And the work that comes out of that is like exhilarating. It is phenomenal. They are, they beautifully create things that I could have never done by myself, that maybe they could have never done by themselves. So what I learned from that is that they need time and space and each other to create because we can't always create. And then there's some joy and some energy when I'm creating something with colleagues as opposed to by myself. There's, there's transformation when we have collaboration. Transformation does not happen a lot by oneself. Um, and you're talking about a model, you know, teaching across these five pursuits of identity, skills, intellect, criticality, and joy. That's a bit of a departure from what we have been currently, um, like policy has currently been pushing in schools. We have largely been pushing skills only instruction. And so for, for teachers to be so brilliant to show up to do that work in such a short amount of time after they've been conditioned and been practicing typically skills only instruction, I mean, that is just mind blowing the work that they can do. So those things I have found to be really strong for leaders to just give teachers time. And this is not a new concept, right, Lindsay? We've been calling for more time. 
But maybe, just maybe, it's time to restructure education in the United States. We still do education like we did in 1638 in this country. The way we schedule, the way we train and prepare, and the way we teach. I think it's time for a bit of an overhaul. Oh my gosh, could not agree more. Yes, yes to all of the things. And, and, and that time piece, and the, I, I often forget that collaboration piece. That is huge. Because even when I would create as a teacher, I would create this really cool unit and I'd have this beautiful driving question. And then I would just be sitting in a room by myself, just geeking out about it and be like, this is so cool. And just wishing that I had someone else that also thought it was so cool. And it might be the teacher next door, but the teacher next door is teaching because you're planning during the school day or you're at home on your couch. You know, there's so much of that space that has, that holds so much potential when we can bring everyone in and just say, the only thing you have to do right now is to create beautiful things and be an artist, right? You don't have to do all this other stuff. So yeah. Yeah, And maybe it will, it, you know what else it does? It, those people who did not want criticality are very, were very uncomfortable with like teaching about different people's cultures, like black people LGBTQ culture, gender cultures, and or people who just did not want to teach about justice or thought it was impossible. Those those spaces create possibilities, and it hold, we hold each other accountable in those spaces. So for somebody who is can be very hateful or can be very like neglectful of certain people and cultures, like we hold each other accountable for thinking very differently hopefully shifting what's in our hearts. That is such an excellent point. And it, and it brings me to kind of this, this next part of the book that I wanted to talk about, which is you, you have this whole section on addressing resistance um, and thinking about, you have beautiful questions that just are, I think, an amazing resource for educators to look through. How would you respond? What are the questions that you ask? Um, with truth and love, I think you say, you know, asking these questions and engaging in this conversation, but really to get at the root of the resistance and then try to educate is is what you would refer to. And and I think there's there's so much that you have already said that speaks to this, right? The five pursuits are more advanced than a skills-only education. Like this is better for all children. Um, and and I'm I'm very aware of the teachers and the departments who, for whatever reason, overwhelm, fear, not knowing a lot there is a tendency to do what I used to call like add diversity and stir. Um, but I think it's called an additive type of curriculum from James Banks uh, or like the contribution yeah. type of curriculum that you mentioned. Yeah. So do you mind talking through kind of like why those are actually not helpful for people who are listening? You're like, oh yeah, I kind of do that. Um, and why they could even be harmful to students. Well, we want to be excellent. We don't want to be okay or basic, right? So the first part of what you said, I put this, I tried to put in parts of the book that teachers kept asking me about. Um, like they kept asking me, like, what are the steps? Uh, what do you do when you have resistance? Every single meeting I would have with teachers, they would ask me that question. I, and so we have to build capacity, right? I, I can't, I may not be in a place where I can answer all the questions, but if these questions keep coming up, let me put it in the book so we all have access, right? In case people didn't make it to those meetings. And I wanted to include why people, in my experience, why people have been resistant for culturally responsive work, Black liberatory work, or you know, work that includes Black, Indigenous, children of color. And I wanted to also include in the book, how do you respond 
And in this response, I always start with love because even as people have been hateful toward me saying mean and threatening things to my life, just for me talking about like joy and criticality and justice, like I still do not uh, engage. I still say, you know, like to myself, you know, I'm sorry, you don't love me, but I won't, I won't go there with you and call you out your names. Cause there's like people who just simply hate but for the most part, people are against this work because they don't know. It's a it's a high amount of ignorance. And then they also have a lot of fear. And I can say this work is new, but we have people, Americans in this country, Black Americans who have been doing this work since the 1800s. And so, you know, we have to build our capacity. We have to be a bit uncomfortable if it means that we are growing and learning in ways that would be best for our children, you know, we have to lose our egos and stop being so mean. I mean, it sounds so simple, but like people have been mean in some ways to me as I, as I talk about joy and it's like, what's inside of you to be so mean to such a uh, happy, beautiful person as myself? <laughs> I show up with joy and I show with love. So, you know, Dr. Yolanda Seeley Ruiz, she says that this work calls for us to do an archaeological dig of the self. And she says it starts with two things, critical love, where you love our children and love each other in ways that you are fighting against oppression or hurt, pain, and harm. And the second thing she says is critical humility. Like, just like, you know, like step back a little bit and listen and learn and heal. And so, you know, I, I really am pushing for those things in the work. And then I'm also pushing that we don't hire folks that have, um, that don't have a record of anti-racism. We want, we want to hire people who, who knows how, who's ready and prepared or at least willing to do this work. So we don't have to keep fighting folks who don't want humani you know, humanizing practices. Absolutely. And I think it was Dr. Celia Ruiz who said on um, Dr. Sheldon Aiken's podcast, like you have to be able to put your job on the line for this work, right? Like I, in your book, you write about like, we're accountable to students more than our bosses, right? Like yeah. this is why we do what we do. Right. And this is, this is the call. This is, this is the action. Yes. So beautiful. Oh my gosh. There's, there's so much. I could honestly talk to you for hours, but I know. I can talk to you too. I can feel your love and your spirit for this work. And I can also feel that you do your work. You listen, you, you don't just like wait for something to pop up on the news. You read, you know, that's what it means to be a scholar of education. We're not just listening to media, um, but we're also reading, we're going to uh, multimedia texts and multimodal texts and primary source documents to do the work. We're not relying on one scholar or one person to tell us what something is or isn't. Yes, absolutely. Oh my gosh. I, I love that kind of like call to action to you for, for listeners. Like I, I have just recently been playing around with and very much inspired by your work, Dr. Muhammad, of this idea of like starting a unit spark at the end, at the beginning of each week, just on social media or something like, here's this really cool, like podcast episode or a screenshot from a book or something that like inspired me to think about like all these unit ideas. So like, what does it inspire you to do? How would you create a unit around this really cool spark or inspiration? Mm -hmm. I think there's so much cool stuff that we could do with that. 
<laughs> really is. Listen, we'll probably be talking um, after this of thinking ideas because once I get an, a co-creator, a genius artist with me, I just want to create because what I've been doing now is like taking podcasts like yours and having student teachers and scholars like in my class, like, you know, like my PhD students, like read it. I mean, listen to the podcast instead of like always just assigning books or articles, but these are intellectual pieces. And how can you listen to a podcast and how does this shape practice policy and research too? So it's all kind of levels to it. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. I love this. So I think, is there anything else I want to give space to, I, cause I asked all the questions here. Is there anything else that we didn't talk about today that, that you would like to share? Well, you know, you, you kind of hit this early on, but you know, it was my hope that the book felt like a joyful experience. So there's each chapter is layered with a playlist of songs and music that connects to the content of that chapter. So the meanings of the songs connect to the meanings of that chapter. And they were, they're intended to be played softly in the background, hopefully choosing any, like, there are some songs that have like different versions, right? Like blowing in the wind is like one. And I'm like, oh, do I choose the Stevie Wonder, Sam Cooke version? So I just encourage readers to pick the versions and listen to it and see how that can add to layers of meaning. But each chapter also has artwork. Each chapter has poetry. Like you said, they have coloring book pages. And, um, you know, I start with, I start the book with um, inviting um, extraordinarily talented artist Pharrell Williams to write the foreword, which was a cool experience to like see how he thinks about different forms of art from what he does and how my different forms of art from what I do, how these two combine toward this bigger idea of joy. I love that. And I love that music is so central. I, I mean, and art is so central to all of the conversations about joy the fact that you can literally read the book and experience those sparks, like just thinking about some of the text, the songs, the the visuals that you shared, or even the activity of, of coloring, right? I think there's so much there that will spark a unit idea, right? Or, or get us in that practice of what's right in front of you develop around it. I think that does it, right? That's a practice in and of itself, just reading the book. So it was a beautiful experience. Everyone should go buy that book. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. So I think everyone, in addition to buying the book, is going to want to, you know, follow your brilliance. I know you post so many really powerful things on like Twitter and and I'm sure you're on other social media spaces around like, here's what these great educators are doing. Let me highlight this. Here's this unit idea, all sorts of things. So where can people find you or follow that stuff? Well, like at Goldie M at G-H-O-L-D-Y-M. Um, is my um, Twitter and Instagram. And yes, I'm always sharing. I mean, the, the things that teachers do with my model is so phenomenal. Like they'll take whole films, like, uh, you know, Black Panther or something. They'll create like a whole unit plan. Another, um, and I put a little excerpt of this in the book. Another teacher did a whole play curriculum for, for um, early childhood um, and um, three-year-olds. Uh, so yeah, I'm always sharing those things. And, um, I also have a cultivating genius page on Facebook where we share a lot of this work too. And, 
it's just been really exciting. And I think teachers have appreciated like having their work spotlighted, like it's made them feel good. I'm like, is it okay if I share this? And they're like, oh my gosh, I would be honored, you know, like, because it's almost like they're doing a gallery of their art and like people get to engage and they've been enjoying it. And then other teachers get to learn from them. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh. I can't believe it's been 30 minutes. <laughs> Dr. Muhammad, this has been an absolute joy for me. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. Wow. That conversation with Dr. Muhammad was amazing. I am so excited and inspired to go ahead and develop some units. So first step, if you haven't, go ahead and buy and consume and interact with her new book, Unearthing Joy. It is phenomenal. She is a true artist. It is an experience. You don't want to miss it. Next, once you're ready to develop your curricular practice and design units around those things in front of you in daily life, those podcasts that you listen to, all that cool, inspiring stuff, go ahead and grab this episode's freebie. That's my curriculum bootcamp planner, which is totally tied and connected to and brings in pieces from Dr. Muhammad's Hill model. You can find that at lindsaybethlyons.com slash blog slash 105. If you're leaving this episode wanting more, you're going to love my live coaching intensive curriculum bootcamp. I help one department or grade team create feminist, anti-racist curricula that challenges, affirms, and inspires all students. We weave current events into course content and amplify student voices, which skyrockets engagement and academic achievement. It energizes educators feeling burnt out, and it's just two days. Plus, you can reuse the same process anytime you create a new unit, which saves time and money. If you can't wait to bring this to your staff, I'm inviting you to sign up for a 20-minute call with me. Grab a spot on my calendar at www.lindsaybethlyons.com contact. Until next time, leaders, continue to think big, act brave, and be your best self. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. Explore more podcasts at teachbetter.com slash podcasts, and we'll see you at the next episode.